0: Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and hopefully I have some concrete evidence that will satisfy you. Welcome to Too Much Information, my new podcast intent on outlining the who, the what, and the when of Doctor Who, a television program about traveling through time and space and landing in the scariest bits of both. This is a podcast that hopes to be for everyone with even the most passing interest in Doctor Who. You might be just about to watch, or have only just watched the episode in question and are eager to learn everything about it, or it could be that you know it backwards and would just like to consolidate what you already know. I'm going to go through the series in order, outlining the basics and throwing the spotlight on the unexplored. Hopefully this will act like a York Notes, a one-stop shop for general info, with the odd shelf stacked with strange ephemera you didn't know you needed, regarding each and every episode of Doctor Who. I shall be using my little corner of the internet to bombard you with positive irons and to beat happiness into you with facts and observations and names and dates and stuff you didn't know you cared about. Not that I can guarantee you will care once it's all over, but be fair, my heart is pure. And this time we're looking at the first episode after the first episode. The one where the adventuring begins, where the regulars and the concept have been established and the trouble needs to start. It's the difficult second album, as Doctor Who starts its regular treadmill of production, where some long-running concepts are established and some other things happen for the first and only time. So join me, Toby Hadoke, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who The Cave of Skulls. Or, the best way to give up is not to start. First broadcast on the 30th of November, 1963, at 5.29pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with guest stars Jeremy Young as Cal, and Derek Newark, a Czar. It was written by Anthony Coben, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Warris Hussain. It's cold outside but there's an atmosphere in a nearby cave where Zar, son of the recently deceased leader and fire maker of the tribe, who rather thoughtlessly has taken the secret of his success to the grave with him, tries to cement his position as the new head honcho by generating some heat of his own. An old woman heckles him and despite some high-end rubbing he fails to set the world alight. His rival A stranger to the tribe called Cal becomes the first person in history to see a London police box and a man, in this case TV's Doctor Who, smoking a pipe. He tries to get the old man to share his secret, actually just some matches, by clubbing him over the head and dragging him to the cave. It's not an approach that does anyone any favours. 14th of June 1963 Australian Anthony Coburn is commissioned as a staff writer to write four 25-minute episodes of the new family science fiction serial Doctor Who At one stage, these episodes are intended to comprise the second story but they are now promoted to first place with the postponement and eventual cancellation of C.E. Weber's Giants adventure Coburn is given a delivery date of Monday the 17th of June for the first script, with the next two, including what will become The Cave of Skulls, due on the 26th. Coburn has conceived the caveman idea because he has a long-held interest in the Stone Age and believes the clash of cultures between cavemen and contemporary characters will be rich with dramatic opportunity. The current plan is that the second episode will be recorded on August the 9th for broadcast on September the 14th. As these plans are coming together, producer Verity Lambert joins the team. 17th of June. The first script is delivered. With the series premise established, Coburn can now turn his attention to the caveman part of the storyline. He initially thinks that the tribal characters should communicate only in grunts, but then he starts to change his mind. One of the Neanderthal characters is originally called Humph, who, when asked the secret of fire, would presumably have said, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Look it up. Humph is a reference to one of Coburn's close friends from Australia. Talking of the writer's home turf, the tribe, the tribe of gum, owes its moniker to those Antipodean roots, gum being the more colloquial name for the eucalyptus tree, which is common there. In the earliest version in existence, a story breakdown, the character of Horg does not appear. He is introduced later on as someone is needed to provide the pragmatic voice of the tribe, laying down the neutral case as the attributes or otherwise of Cal and Zar are weighed up. Horg being hers father also gives us someone to enunciate another of the stakes in the battle for supremacy. The firemaker doesn't just get to lead, he gets the tribe's best woman too. In this first storyline, Cal isn't an outsider. This comes in during the scene breakdown. The story breakdown, which is a synopsis of the whole adventure, not broken into episodes, has most of the incidents we eventually see, but some are presented slightly differently from what we get. Ian, for example, anticipates the Brigadier in The Three Doctors. When the ship is transported to Paleolithic times, he admits that the Doctor has some kind of moving machine. That's okay. A police box that moves, he can definitely handle. But one that travels through time? Nope, he's not having that. That is a leap of the imagination too far. The Doctor therefore angrily goes off to find proof and stops to light his pipe, but is then attacked by Cal. This time though, when the Doctor can't find his matches in the cave, it is he, not Ian, who is threatened with death. The others then barge their way in. Presumably Ian being the one nearly brained and the Doctor saving him helps us confirm the anti-hero old man as the central character in the finished version. Because night is approaching and the tribe is scared of the dark, this is a big deal in the storyline that never makes it quite so blatantly into the finished version. The gang are put in the cave, but due to it obviously being a place of killing, they soon realise that when morning comes, they will be executed. 18th of June Coben is commissioned to write the second four-part serial as well, as the team feel that he is the only writer up to speed enough with the format of the show to be able to pull it off with such a quick turnaround. 24th of June New script editor David Whittaker starts work on the series and begins to make his own impression on Coburn's first script. 25th of June the caveman story begins to take shape, as Coburn's first crack at the Cave of Skulls is delivered today, Tuesday, as Coburn explains in his apologetic letter. I meant to have you this on Monday morning, but I have found out one thing about the caveman that you might pass on to any learned anthropologist you know, and I'm sure you number many among your closest friends. It is this. They must have been very much smaller than ourselves. This fact I deduce not from a close study of the implements, nor by using my scobanometer in Hatchendorf's test of the plutonium content of their left elbows, but by knowing how bloody difficult it is to get into their skins. And lastly, I rather think that word-wise this one might be a little too long. I'm a lousy timer. See what you think. Son of the son of the sun of the son of the son of the ad infinitum firemaker, Tony. Whittaker asks Coburn to do rewrites. He is not wild about the cavemen, and nor is Lambert, and he briefly considers dropping the serial. They're worried that the cavemen aren't terribly interesting, and worse, that having actors running about grunting will be unintentionally comedic. 1st of July. Coburn's contract as a staff writer at the BBC is terminated by mutual consent. This is because of the closure of the BBC script department, and the new way of doing things. Sidney Newman has decided that having writers on staff is less favourable than hiring them on a freelance basis. This is all part of his big idea of breaking up the script department and restructuring the way that drama is produced. 3rd of July Coburn is recontracted as a freelancer for his work on the show. Two serials – Doctor Who and the Tribe of Gum at four episodes and Doctor Who and the Robots at six episodes, ten episodes in total, are requested, with a delivery date of all scripts by the 30th of October. The contract states, despite any work Coburn may have done in the development of the show, that the concept and four central characters belong to the BBC. He is to be paid £225 per episode, but has asked to be paid the full amount split over 12 monthly instalments to replicate the way he used to be paid as a staff writer. 8th of July Coburn submits his rewritten script for the first episode today. The others, including The Cave of Skulls, follow shortly after. Ian is actually called Chesterton in all of the dialogue cues in the first script, but we're on first-name terms by the camera script where, as Susan and Barbara always are, he is referred to by his Christian name. 12th of July Whittaker expresses his satisfaction with Coburn's rewrite of the pilot in a document which demonstrates how Doctor Who stands so far. A four-part and a six-part script by Coburn and a seven-part serial, A Journey to Cathay, which will become Marco Polo, by John Lucarotti. Other writers have had storylines requested from them. Robert Banks-Stewart, Terry Nation and Malcolm Hulk, who will all make it onto the show, but only Nation under this regime, although Hulk comes pretty close, and Peter Yeltham, Alan Wakeman, Barbara Harper and John Bowen and Jeremy Bullmore, who will not. Coburn's scene breakdown for his four-parter actually has The Cave of Skulls as the title of episode three, whilst this one, episode two, is called The Fire Maker. Episode 4 eventually becomes The Fire Maker, but as all one word, without the dash between fire and maker, as it is currently presented here when mooted as the title for Episode 2. In this scene breakdown, Doctor Who collects flora and fauna to determine where and when they are. It is, we are told, the only way he can compile facts so that he can understand the machinery and engines of the ship. The others examine bones of an animal, which leads Barbara to determine that they are prehistoric, possibly mid-Paleolithic. 15th of July. By now, Warris Hussain has been stated as director of the first serial. He and producer Lambert hit it off immediately. He is also not crazy about the caveman storyline, which means that the producer, script editor, and now the director are feeling Somewhat lumbered, but without any other script ready or stories good to go, they don't have much choice. 23rd of July. Today, and the next two, is when the film material for The Cave of Skulls and the next two episodes is originally planned to take place. But plans change. A lot. 12th of August. Waris Hussain writes to Special Sound Maestro Brian Hodgson about his sound requirements for the first two episodes of Doctor Who. Episode 2 will not need much, just two sections on pages 6 and 11, which might need certain noises, but I will talk to you about that on Friday, when I believe we're meeting for lunch as previously arranged. 16th of August, the date that the Cave of Skulls is originally due to be recorded unless the pilot is not a success, in which case today is earmarked for a remount of the pilot. This, as we know, isn't what happens in either case, as production ends up being totally put back, so this date is also to be added to your diaries for information only. Please see earlier episodes of Too Much Information for full details of fluctuating dates. 17th of September. David Whittaker formally accepts all four scripts for The Tribe of Gum, including, therefore, The Cave of Skulls. Any further rewrites will be done by him, and that's largely material with The Four Travellers. 18th of September. The incidental music for the episode, and the whole story in fact, is recorded by the Norman Kaye Ensemble on this date. At around this time, the casting process begins for the cave people roles. Waris Hussain takes Jeremy Young, an actor with a bit of TV profile thanks to his regular role as Neville Crane in ITV's journalist drama Deadline Midnight, which ran from 1960 to 61, to lunch to offer him the part of Cal. Young accepts and suggests Derek Newark, who had been in an episode of Deadline Midnight and who Young thinks will work as a strong adversary for him for the role of Tsar. Hussein invites Newark in for a meeting and asks if he is a hairy man. He's after Hassute actors to convincingly play the cavemen. Newark replies, no, I am a smooth man, in reference to the biblical quotation, Esau my brother is a hairy man and I am a smooth man, spoken by Jacob when highlighting that his mother's plan that he pass himself off as his brother has a practical downside. The quotation was hanging in the air in popular culture, thanks to its inclusion in an Alan Bennett skit in the groundbreaking review show Beyond the Fringe in 1960. Newark, who has also just, in August-September, worked with fellow guest star Alethea Charlton and David Whittaker's wife June Barry in the BBC Sunday night play Plain Jane, is actually pretty hairy. Hussein actually asks prospective actors to take their shirts off, you know. He's also a good, tough actor, and so he gets the part, which is an early guest-starring role for him after much of his TV career to date has been in smaller supporting roles. But the recreation of a stage success from a couple of years earlier, playing conflicted soldier Varley in the ITV Play of the Week End of Conflict in July 1963, interestingly, his two co-stars from the stage version, Ian McKellen and Mark Eden, didn't make it to the screen manifestation, means that Newark is becoming hotter property. Eileen Way, cast as the Old Mother, is the highest-paid member of the guest cast, a testament to her lengthy career and the amount of time she has been used by the BBC. With Young next, then Howard Lang, the experienced actor hired to play Haug, then relative newcomer Newark, and finally Charlton. Of them, only Charlton is actually paid less than series regular, Carol Ann Ford. Top of the tree is William Hartnell. His episode fee is £183.15, shillings, the equivalent of £3,237 at the time of recording. 19th of September. The first footage for The Cave of Skulls is shot at Ealing, In the session given over to the TARDIS, its arrival and the shadowy cliffhanger to part one, and the spears thrown at it in episode four, there's a brief shot of the police box from Cal's point of view, seen just before we cut back inside to see what has become of the travellers, and that is shot today. Twelve seconds in total, and a single take is deemed sufficient. Only another twenty-four and a bit minutes and this baby's in the can. 8th of October Scenery scheduled to arrive for tomorrow's filming fails to do so until 3.40pm due to transport and staff shortages and so overtime is sanctioned in order to get everything ready in time. 9th of October Filming takes place at Ealing for the caveman story. The next two days will concentrate on the fight scene between Cal and Zar and today covers all of the stuff on the Paleolithic landscape. For the Cave of Skulls This is the sequence of the travellers emerging from the ship, the first work that the regulars will do together that will actually be broadcast on television. This film sequence is shot before the studio session for the broadcast version of An Unearthly Child, and so is historical in the sense that it is the first material featuring William Hartnell to be filmed playing the Doctor that actually ends up broadcast on BBC television during the show's run. The pilot, of course, came first, but that wasn't shown originally. So, therefore, the first line he says as the Doctor, and using the performance of that character that has been settled on since the pilot, that ends up being viewed by the British public is It's still a police box. Why hasn't it changed? Dear, dear, how very disturbing. And what a good delivery he gives it. Jeremy Young is also on hand for the shots of Cal spotting the TARDIS. In addition, a photocall of the Palaeolithic landscape is also held for publicity photographs. 18th of October The transmitted version of An Unearthly Child is recorded. This is nothing to do with the production of The Cave of Skulls as such, except that the guest cast and extras for Episode 2 had initially been contracted to work on it during this period, so they get paid for this week's rehearsal and episode despite not being used. In effect, they get four episodes pay for three episodes work. 21st of October. The Cave of Skulls begins rehearsals at the Drill Hall, 239 Uxbridge Road. William Hartnell commutes from his home in Mayfield to London. It is 79 miles between Mayfield and Ealing where he lodges, so his is a weekly commute, arriving in London on the Monday morning and returning either Friday night very late, or Saturday morning, after the recording of the episode. He stays in a flat in Haven Lane in Ealing, which provides easy access to an Ealing Broadway pub where he spends his evenings. In rehearsals, the actors playing cavemen find it hard to take what they're doing seriously whilst dressed in their modern clothes, and so the process isn't hugely serious. In retrospect, Lambert sees the value in this, as any humour is expunged before the actual performance, which is then done with the requisite seriousness. During this week, some more changes are made to the script by the cast, and Newark and Young in particular break down some of their dialogue, adding grunts and snarls in an attempt to stop their Neanderthals being too well-spoken. 25th of October. Doctor Who. The Cave of Skulls is rehearsed and camera-recorded today in Lime Grove Studio D. The recording session lasts from 8.30pm to 9.45pm. Margot Maxine, who has been hired to play one of the tribe's women Extras, is paid for the week but leaves the show today without ever appearing after refusing to have her teeth blackened and to remove her false eyelashes in order to be convincingly mucky as a cave lady. She walks out at 3pm and never darkens Doctor Who's door, let alone her teeth, ever again. The child extras are supplied by the Corona Stage School, who supplied the Coal Hill kids last week. Carol Ann Ford finds a lizard in the undergrowth used to dress the set landscape, and so she rescues it, takes it home, and it becomes her pet. The Cave of Skulls is allocated a budget Of £2,500, but ends up costing £3,232, 8 shillings and sixpence, overspending by £732, 8 shillings and sixpence. 27th of November. Sydney Newman is staying at the Warwick Hotel in New York City and receives a telegram from Donald Wilson, who reports that as a result of the first episode being broadcast, Doctor Who, off to a great start, everybody here delighted, regards, Donald. 30th of November, 1963. The Cave of Skulls is broadcast. It is originally scheduled for 5.15pm. Instead... An unscheduled repeat of An Unearthly Child takes place during this time, due to not only the big switch-off and national shock resulting from the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, but also a power failure that blighted the nation on November 23rd and dented The Doctor's debut. The rerun eats up the end of the scheduled grandstand programme and the first 15 minutes intended for cave skullduggery. And so the second episode of Doctor Who actually goes out around 14 minutes late at 5.29pm. This has the effect of knocking the telly goons out of the TV schedule this week and the episode The Choking Horror not appearing until the 28th of December. With this shift, the BBC Saturday night schedule then gets back to normal. The Cave of Skulls gets 5.9 million viewers, a small drop-off from the repeat of episode 1, which gets 6.0, compared to 4.4 million last week, vindicating the decision to run it again. The Cave of Skulls gets an audience appreciation figure of 59, a drop from the 63 accrued by last week's episode. Two viewers, Miss Johnson and Mr Priddy, write to the Doctor Who production office immediately, with the first of many missives of the I-think-you'll-find variety scribbled by Doctor Who fans over the years. The tribe, they observe, being lower or middle Paleolithic, would not have known the secret of fire, nor was there any evidence of patriarchal tribal systems during this era. The encroaching cold wouldn't have been so stark or observable either, and the skeletal remains would not be fully articulatable post-decomposition. But other than that, we must assume that they liked it. Script editor David Whittaker is kind enough to reply, postulating that perhaps this particular tribe had had the secret of fire and then lost it, and that indeed evidence for the patriarchal society was very slender, but should be permitted on the grounds of dramatic license. But that yes, the skeleton thing, whilst very much desired by the producer, his word, for a winning visual, was a mistake and so he holds his hands up. Which, ironically, the skeletons in question would not, of course, have been able to do. 5th of December. Junior Points of View, the BBC feedback show for younger viewers, announces the winner of its poll of most popular programmes with children. Z Cars, Not a Kids Show, comes top, and in second place, after only these two weeks, comes Doctor Who. They catch on fast, kids. In the stage newspaper, on the other hand, Marjorie Norris, who reviews both episodes one and two, eulogises the opening installment, but then declares that. The
1: cavemen and women in the second episode were a little disappointing. This was partly because their well chiselled 1963 features and strong white teeth were at odds with the stunted ape men of my
0: imagination,
1: but even so, I felt that for once the makeup artists were not
0: on top form. Marjorie Norris's views seem to chime with those expressed by Mary Crozier a few days earlier, on the 2nd of December, in The Guardian. Miss Crozier is disappointed.
1: The space-time serial has fallen off badly soon after getting underway,
0: she writes. The first episode, according to her, got off the ground predictably. What, a police box that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? Really, Mary? You predicted that, did you? But there was little to thrill. And if that wasn't enough... Part
1: two was a depressing sequel. The vessel came down in a prehistoric landscape and the hairy savages who lived there got busy with prolonged debates and quarrels about their inability to make fire. Wigs and furry pelts and clubs and laborious dialogue were all ludicrous. Were these serious stone ages or not? The spaceship, for some unexplained reason, remained looking like a police box in the dusty desert. I hope that this will be explained later.
0: Well, Mary... It was actually explained in the episode you were being so snooty about. Twice. So, Mary Crozier in The Guardian and Marjorie Norris in the stage. Well done. You were the first two people to opine that Doctor Who is not as good as it used to be. And it only took you a week. 13th of December. Sydney Newman, having returned from the USA, watches... The Cave of Skulls, and next week's episode, The Forest of Fear, and responds to feedback made earlier by Grace Wyndham-Goldie, the head of BBC Current Affairs, who nonetheless found the serial well made, and Donald Bavastock, controller of television, that the show should be moved to a later time slot. Newman declares the series to be wonderful and resists their suggestion, and successfully so. The What Right, let's start with the title I call this whole story an unearthly child Why? Because that's what I am used to And if you don't agree with me, I'll throw opal fruits at you Whilst eating a marathon and cleaning up the resultant mess with Jif in Coburn's early documents, the script is called The Tribe of Gum and modern revisionists, who have perfectly good reasons but came too late in the day for an old stick-in-the-mud like me and partially because these broadcasts are never going to call anything Inside the Spaceship or Dalek Cutaway, but we'll get to those in later episodes, refer to it as 100,000 BC, which also appears in Doctor Who magazine. They call it 100,000 BC, but the BBC still use an unearthly child on their home video releases, so it seems sensible to stick with that. As a side note, the production team considered the story to be set in 100,000 BC, but Anthony Coburn had actually specified to them that the ship had travelled back in time 195,000 years. In the script... It suggests that the closing moments of episode 1, that shadowy cliffhanger, are played before the opening titles of episode 2, with the music sting coming in over the shot of Cal staring at the TARDIS. Doctor Who wouldn't get such a pre-title sequence for quite a number of years. The opening title music runs at 34 seconds, compared to nearly one and a half minutes on the opening episode. This shorter version will be the norm from now on. It runs slightly into the action. Again, the opening episode has it take place over quite a lot of the moving footage once the titles have faded. The episode title captions are superimposed over film footage of Jeremy Young as Cal looking at the newly landed TARDIS. This wasn't the original plan, as we shall see, but before that, the first thing we see outside of the spaceship is the shadow of Cal falling across the landscape. It was originally intended to be more threatening, less mysterious, a shadow with a raised club in its hand. Cal is actually a shadow of his future self, as even if Jeremy Young had been cast when this scene was recorded, 19th of September, so very unlikely, he wouldn't have been used because it would have been more expensive. As his face isn't seen, it's easier and cheaper to use an extra. In this case, Leslie Bates who becomes the first human to record any on-screen material ever in doctor who even if he is standing off camera he is paid 5 pounds and 5 shillings with 1 pound and 1 shilling for his costume fitting so a grand total of 6 pounds and 6 shillings Bates returns in a few weeks to play man at lop at the end of episode 1 of marco polo the roof of the world in a reversal of fortune Because Man at Lop appears in episode 2 but doesn't say anything, it becomes Bates' turn to be replaced by a stand-in to save a few quid. His only other credited role in Doctor Who is as second guard in The Massacre, but he pops up in non-speaking roles many times over the years between Now and The Invisible Enemy, giving his final turn in the series as a By Al member. You can easily make him out as one of the two soldiers he's the brown-haired one behind the brigadier and Benton as they do their best to persuade us that they are on a Welsh mountain and not a CSO backdrop in the latter stages of the Green Death. Bates's nickname, according to fellow extra Derek Martin was Master for reasons that I probably don't need to explain on a family podcast and reasons that are an example of the sense of humour often exhibited by the acting profession. Leslie Bates died in 2014. In the opening cave scene, the old mother was supposed to refer to Tsar as her son, but this was changed in the broadcast version, where mother is used as a more generic term. She is the matriarch of the tribe, rather than Tsar's bossy mum. In Waris Hussain's camera script, this opening scene in the cave was to establish itself as it does panning along the faces and taking in close-ups of Zara and her and the attempt to make fire before alighting on the old mother. There, the camera was to linger whilst the episode title appeared. In the end, the episode title moves forward to the shot of Cal looking at the TARDIS. For this tribe scene, Hussain asks for ritualistic-type percussion music, drums, timbals, etc. And that's what he gets although he relies on harsh wind sound effects just as much as the threatening winter cuts through the air and underscores the theme of the story. The tardis scene in which the school teachers wake up still contains all the mystery and combativeness of those so brilliant and justly celebrated ones in the opening instalment. The Doctor is aloof and evasive, Ian punchy and mistrustful. He doesn't believe they have travelled in time. If you could touch the alien sand... And hear the cries of strange birds And watch them wheel in another sky Would that satisfy you? Asks the Doctor Who then proceeds to satisfy us For the next fifty odd years The TARDIS Oh dear, oh dear, says the Doctor Why hasn't it changed? And later Susan says the same Telling Barbara that it has previously Been an ionic column Or a sedan chair The ship changing shape had been part of the original thinking behind the series, but then, when it was decided to keep the police box due to budgetary and identification purposes, the fact was rolled into the fiction. Susan is convinced that the Doctor has been taken because he has left his notebook, which contains the key codes to all the machines on the ship and notes on everywhere that they have been to. In the script, when Tsar says he will take the Doctor to the Cave of Skulls, he was to say he will scream unless he tells me the secret but this implicit threat of torture is dropped the cave set is made of jablite oh yes fact fans it's jablite not jabalite as a doctor who lore would have you think jablite is the trade name for expanded polystyrene and the cave set backdrop is made from large 12 foot blocks of it they measure 12 feet by 4 and are 1 foot deep The big cracks are the joints. Polystyrene was relatively new in 1963, and so when they came to attach the pieces using solvents, the chemicals within them melted the polystyrene. In the end, though, this was helpful in making the edges rough-hewn like rock. The solvent on polystyrene trick would come in handy later on in Doctor Who when used to depict melting doors or what have you, until it was realised that the fumes the process gave off weren't exactly healthy. For larger textural alteration, though, fire was used to create the shapes in the rock, and so the cave walls the cavemen are in owe their appearance to the very thing they are seeking. If he dies, there will be no fire, says the Doctor, before Zark can bury his axe in Ian's skull. The first instance of the Doctor coming to the aid of his companion, and an illustration that the TARDIS crew are starting to come together as a team. Watch out for the rather alarming moment where Cal silently lurches towards Barbara after the big fight. He clearly has something untoward in mind and it's really very well done, creepily so. The old mother isn't having any of it though. Kill her, she says, when it is clear Cal fancies the schoolteacher. If I'm not getting any, the old mother is clearly thinking, then no one is. Old men never like new things, says Czar Tsar to Haug when he announces his dislike for what is going on. This line was added in rehearsal by Derek Newark, and a very good line it is too. William Hartnell added the line about the stench of the cave during rehearsals. Some of the bones in the cave set are real, but most are replicas. Still, if your great-uncle dedicated his body to medical science sometime prior to 1963, who knows? He may have ended up in Doctor Who. The production also ordered 150 vacuum-formed skulls, which makes for an alarming set dressing in an environment, although it is Earth, which is still somehow convincingly alien. The roving camera sometimes shooting through the bones, the inky blackness of the cave lighting, and the convincingly grungy and grunting cave people add to this dissonance. The guest cast in the closing titles are listed in order of appearance. Sort of. Main guest star Jeremy Young is first to be seen, but he doesn't say anything, and he is on film. Next to be seen is Derek Newark, the first guest actor to perform focal action in studio, so he is billed first, followed by Charlton and Way, who are in the scene with him. Howard Lang as Hogg is visible, but his contribution not deemed notable enough clearly, and he is not mentioned in the script until he speaks later, so he is ...is bottom of the barrel this week. The Who Maureen Hennigan, the costume designer of this episode... ...and indeed the first and the pilot... ...and the whole of this debut story... ...we think, possibly... ...oh, paperwork... uh, ...never returns to Doctor Who. Born in 1930... ...Maureen grew up in England and Scotland... Her father was business manager and her mother director of productions at the Grand Theatre in Croydon. And her sister is the actress Patricia Hennigan, who has appeared in everything from The Age of Kings to Midsummer Murders. Well, everything, that is, except for Doctor Who. Maureen was always fascinated by the history of dress, and she studied costume design in London. She cut her teeth early, in aid of the Waifs and Strays Society in 1948, for the Gradson School of Dancing, she designed over 26 styles for 400 dresses made for a very special performance at the Scala for a variety of performers, from tiny tots to 17-year-olds. This was quite an achievement for an 18-year-old costume designer. She spent three years at the Royal Shakespeare Company, working with Laurence Olivier, Vivian Lee, Peggy Ashcroft and Michael Redgrave, and then joined the BBC for five years. She worked on Champion Road in 1958, the Eustace Diamonds in 1959, and 1960's Tobias and the Angel, which as we discovered in a previous installment of Too Much Information, also shares some of the Doctor Who title sequence footage. She had actually moved to Canada to work at CBC TV in Ontario, and was only back at the BBC for a six month stint when she and Doctor Who crossed paths. She pushed for William Hartnell to wear the astrakhan hat. The actor had apparently wanted a cloth cap. She came back with six different versions of the astrakhan in order to find one that he liked. Combined with the wig, it was enough to win Hartnell over. And Hennigan was also responsible for the Doctor's Edwardian look.
1: It had to be something related to the 20th century, but not too far away from it. So I thought, why not go into the 19th century? The streetwear at the time was Edwardian-ish.
0: She gave him an Edwardian coat.
1: He had to have fobs and a chain and a pocket watch, so we gave him a waistcoat. Then he had to have a muffler, because all travellers seem to wear mufflers.
0: She found Hartnell to be difficult.
1: He was an angry actor, not simpatico. And he had definite ideas of what he wanted Doctor Who to look like. I was stuck in the middle.
0: She remembered in 2013... But noted that he liked the look of the hat on his face and that it went well with his wig she doesn't actually remember working on the caveman episodes and though credited in the paperwork it may be that the crossover between her and daphne dare who would become the series regular costume designer happened earlier than the documentation suggests but we don't know having already worked back and forth across the oceans she emigrated to Canada in the mid-1960s, where she continued her theatre and television work. Then, wanting more regular hours, she moved into academic theatre, first at Harvard, then Boston University, and latterly at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, where she served as Associate Professor of Costume Design. She still lives in America. Because of the topsy-turvy nature of this particular production, Maureen is the only classic series costume designer not to receive an on-screen credit on the show, so even if she didn't work directly on The Cave of Skulls, we are not going to pass up the opportunity to say a little something about the first person to design costumes for Doctor Who. Jeremy Young Jeremy Young, who plays Cal, in An Unearthly Child, was born in Liverpool in 1934 and enjoyed doing playlets at school. So when he left the army in 1954 and was offered a job in Fleet Street, he decided instead to answer an advert in the stage for actors for weekly rep and he did his training on the job. He writes today that he had the highly enjoyable life of a nomadic weekly rep actor, then worked my way up to three weekly rep. He married his theatre co-star Coral Atkins in 1960 and got a big TV break, starring as a newspaper reporter called Neville Crane in ITV's Deadline Midnight that year. We're not going to have these actor biogs as just a cold list of credits, but you might wish to look out for Jeremy in such genre fare as Adam Adamant Lives, in which he shows off his excellent fencing skills, which also stood him in good stead when he was Athos opposite Jeremy Brett. Brian Blessed and Gary Watson in the BBC's 1967 The Three Musketeers. He reprised that part for the sequel, The Further Adventures of the Musketeers, although Brett and Watson were gone, with Joss Ackland and John Woodvine replacing them. Athos was one of his favourite TV roles, as was his stint as Benny Lewis in Coronation Street in 1972. We used to record one episode Friday a.m. and one episode Friday p.m. No stopping, recalls Jeremy of Coronation Street. During the countdown to action, there was always an air of tension in the studio, until from somewhere every time, dear Graham Haberfield's voice, Graham Haberfield was the actor who played Jerry Booth, would pipe up, saying, Goodbye, real world. A fitting comment to sum up the madness, don't you think? Says Jeremy. Genre-wise, he is in three Avengers episodes, A Touch of Brimstone, 1966, Never Never Say Die, 1967, and The Forget-Me-Not, 1968. Then, as Russian agent Chislenko in the new Avengers episode, Naws. Yes, that one. He's Vincent Llewellyn in the Doomwatch episode The Battery People, Jack Bartlett in the two-part Space 1999 story The Bringers of Wonder, and he played the Count in the second series of The Tripods, and his non-genre credits include a stint as Dirty Den's Nice Prison Officer in EastEnders and Klaus in Dick Barton's Special Agent. He also clocked up an appearance in the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night. When making Doctor Who, he was reunited with William Russell, with whom he had worked only very recently, June 1963, on an episode of Moonstrike. He was later reunited with Jacqueline Hill in the BBC Shakespeare Romeo and Juliet, which was directed by her husband, Alvin Rakoff. One of Jeremy's other great achievements was landing the leading role in the West End production of Conduct Unbecoming at the Queen's Theatre in 1970. Concurrent with his acting work, Jeremy has worked for over 30 years as a drama teacher and director at the Rose Bruford Academy, Webber Douglas, the Drama Studio... ALRA, and latterly and happily at the Court Theatre Training Company directing final productions, as well as being module leader for Shakespeare and 19th century theatre. His career as a theatre director includes productions in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Vienna, the USA, Hamlet in Albania and Kosovo, and Moliere's Tartuffe at the Thorndike Theatre in Leatherhead. He was also resident director for three seasons at the Watermill Theatre Newbury. He was a founder member of the original Renaissance Theatre Company and a pioneer of Fringe Theatre at the Basement Theatre Soho and the King's Head Islington. Writing to me of his time on An Unearthly Child, Jeremy remembers that William Hartnell was someone who had a serious intensity about his role. He was conscious of his responsibility to the whole project and a good professional. William Russell was a lovely guy who wore made-to-measure shoes, whilst Jacqueline Hill had a gentle manner and a good sense of humour. As for Caroline Ford, she was a sexy, foxy lady, able to play much younger than her years, and who had a good scream. There was a jolly atmosphere, and the regulars were nice to work with, says Jeremy. It was just another job, fun to do, but of course we had no idea it would last so long. This isn't the last we will see of Jeremy either, as he returns to the series in a year or so as Captain Gordon Lowry, unwittingly setting off for a mission to the unknown. Having made history as the very first villain in Doctor Who, it's appropriate that his second marriage was to another landmark nemesis of the Time Lord, Kate O'Mara, a.k.a. the Rani. References Before I go, I need to acknowledge a debt to those doughty and diligent researchers whose work I've picked over and collated and cross-referenced to come up with much of the above. Doctor Who, the complete history, edited by John Ainsworth, contains so much that is useful uh, for timelines and cross-reference and is the embodiment of fastidious research and clear presentation. They are based on Andrew Pixley's rigorously wrought archives features and also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. Apologies if I've missed anyone there. Howe, Stammers and Walker with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s and each of the Doctors in their handbooks deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes and Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record in both words and glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference too. I walk in the shadows of giants, giants whose bags are stuffed full of photocopies and whose houses are doubtless filled with bump. I also acknowledge the documentaries and production texts on the DVD box set, The Beginning. And then there is the peerless Nothing at the End of the Lane, published by Richard Bignall, available dirt cheap, on PDF form online. That's it for now. No one talks about the cavemen much, do they? And yes, it seems a little too obvious to travel to the dawn of time for the first adventure. And yes, Lambert and Whittaker were probably right to worry about convincingly pulling off cavemen. But actually, the actors do a terrific and committed job under very difficult circumstances and the relatively simple story of power dynamics plays out well. This is as alien an environment as Scaro or Xeros, more so than the latter, arguably, and the music drips with atmosphere. The inky blackness of the studio cave set and the stark, bitter vista erected on film convey well the harshness, the creepiness, of not an alien world, but just a time from which our modern sensibilities are inextricably detached. Boris Hussain's camera prowls around the place and the tribe is admirably well populated with more members than some whole planets we'll see in the future. And the core group dynamic starts to form still uneasy at first but the Doctor wanders off and the others go looking and later Ian's life is threatened and the Doctor intervenes before they all end up stricken in group peril for the cliffhanger with those grotesque split skulls flickering like haunted ancient relics of what was once humanity. A simple image but a terrifying way to end the episode. Without fire, we die. Yeah, well, everyone, you managed to light a fire that the way things are going will never go out. Doctor Who, The Cave of Skulls, also featured Eileen Way as the Old Mother, Alethea Charlton as her, and Howard Lang as Horg. The special effects were done by the Visual Effects Department of the BBC. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and the incidental music by Norman Kaye. The story editor was David Whittaker, the associate producer Mervin Pinfield and the designer Barry Newbury. Coming next... Not everyone is keen on progress and the Doctor contemplates murder and the series claims its first victim. The first death of many as the Doctor's Travels pitch us into a forest of fear. That was Doctor Who Too Much Information, written and narrated by me, Toby Haydoke, with thanks to Richard Molesworth, Richard Bignall, Peter Crocker, David Brunt, and Jeremy Young. Additional voices were provided by Lee Houston. Technical assistance was by Russell Parker, and the series consultant, is Richard Bignall. The music for this podcast was specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. Next episode, The Forest of Fear, or never cruel or cowardly, but occasionally a potential murderer. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, please, to this series which contains even more arcane facts. That is now exclusive for patrons. As it's ultra geeky, it needn't be considered essential information. And I have to hold something back as I get used to this patron podcast self-funding, self-producing melange. And this stuff does take quite a lot of time to put together, you know. And I'd like to thank certain patrons, without whom I'd be up a creek without either a paddle or any self-esteem whatsoever. Those I'm going to mention this time around are Ruben Herfendahl, Rob Leonard, Jenny at Bluebox 99, Paul Cook, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Chivon Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Andrew Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Rick Byatt, Paul Carrington, Andy Case, John Curley, Rob Dawson, Ian Gillespie, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, Andrew Jordan, Guy Lambert, David Matthewman, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Melvin Pena, John Rivers, Keith Say, Len Stewart, Nick Temple, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams and Stephen White. I'm grateful to them and to those who didn't get a mention this time around. Please consider supporting these podcasts, which do take approximately forever to put together and are done single-handedly, by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash or by making a one-off donation at ko-fi.com forward slash And if you can review and rate positively at all those pesky outlets, then that will help. And when it's worked and everybody knows about them and loves them, then I'll stop having to ask but we're not there yet. Do join my mailing list at www.tobyhado.com and don't forget to subscribe to the official Toby Hado YouTube channel.